Good morning. Turn your Bible to Mark chapter 6. When we look across history, church history that is, and we look at those who have stood for the faith, October 31st of this year, we will celebrate the 500th year of the Reformation. Men and women who stood in that time of church history for the cause of Christ, willing to not only take on the mission of Christ, but also the cost that came with it as well. And many of them lost their lives. Some that did not lose their lives, some that died of simply old age, or their body was spent from giving themselves to the work of ministry. Men like John Knox, who stood versus Mary, Queen of Scots, or Martin Luther at the Diet of Worms, or Calvin refusing to allow communion to the Libertines. John Knox, in his well-documented relationship or opposition, as it were, to, the, to Mary, Queen of Scots, one of the conversations that they had has been documented, and I want to read from that. Listen to John Knox as he opposes Queen Mary, and notice his words. Queen Mary, yes, but you are not the church that I will nourish. I will defend the church of Rome, for it is, I think, the true church of God. Knox, your will, madam, is no reason. Neither does your thought make that Roman harlot to be the true and immaculate spouse of Jesus Christ. Wonder not, madam, that I call Roman harlot for that church is altogether polluted with all kind of spiritual fornication as well as in doctrine as in manners. Yes, madam, I offer myself to prove that the church of the Jews which crucified Jesus Christ was not so far degenerate from the ordinances which God gave by Moses and Aaron unto his people when they manifestly denied the Son of God as the church of Rome is declined and more than 500 years hath declined from the purity of that religion which the apostles taught and planted. Mary, my conscience is not so. Knox, conscience, madame, requireth knowledge, and I fear that right knowledge you have none. Mary, but I have both heard and read. Knox, so, madame, did the Jews who crucified Jesus Christ both read the law and the prophets, and heard the same interpreted after their manner. Have you heard any teach, but such as is the Pope and his cardinals have allowed? You may be assured that such will speak nothing to offend their own estate. You and Mary, you interpret the scriptures in one manner and they in another. Whom should I believe? Who will be the judge? Knox, you shall believe God, that plainly speaketh in his word, and further than the word teaches to you, you shall believe neither the one nor the other. The word of God is plain in itself. If there appear any obscurity in one place, the Holy Spirit, which is never contrarious to himself, explaineth the same more clearly in other places, so that there can remain no doubt, but into such as obstinately will remain ignorant. Knox didn't mince any words, because the mission of proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ was something that he didn't merely apply to those who would listen. He would also apply to those who would not listen and to those that could even take his own life. 
If we're called to mission for Jesus Christ, as we looked at last week, then brothers and sisters, we must be well prepared for the cost of such a high and holy mission. Followers of Christ on mission with and for Jesus Christ by the power of Christ will suffer. John Knox, Calvin, others were simply the next in line. A line of faithful men in the face of persecution for following Christ that goes back all the way to today's text. The suffering of John the Baptist. And we would do well to remember that Mark is writing to the early Gentile persecuted church. And he has just written to them, as we looked at last week, encouraging them to be about the mission of Jesus Christ. To imitate Christ in the message. To imitate Christ in how he goes. And now he's encouraging them to realize that there is a cost to being on mission for Jesus Christ. And there's a cost for us. We are not under physical persecution yet in this land in America, but we are under persecution. I sent out two weeks ago an article from the persecuted church in the Middle East saying about our church here in America, you are being persecuted, but it's of a kind that is much more dangerous It's a gnawing, it's a mental, it's a working against, it's trying to force mediocrity and give ground here and give ground there. And if we're to be about the mission of Jesus Christ, then we cannot give ground. We must stand fast and firm upon the truth in God's word and continue to call people to the truth, which is believe on Jesus Christ and repent. It must be the centrality of our message. Look with me at the text this morning. I want to uh, note that this story is really told in reverse. We're going to have to really start all the way at 29 and work back. Because the main point of the passage for us this morning is really verse 14 through 16. And then it's as if Mark almost writes in reverse. Now you know this, but that's because you need to know this. And then he tells you a little bit more. And then he tells you a little bit more. All working back to the point found in verse 14 through 16. So to set things up carefully, let's look at this message again, 14 through 16. I'm going to read it, and as as I read it again, I'm going to take some time to introduce us to the three characters within this story, namely Herod, his wife Herodias, and of course John the Baptist. King Herod heard of it. Now let me first say that Herod was not a king. He wanted to be known as a king, But he was not a king. He was the seventh son of Herod the Great. And he was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. He served simply as an administrator under Rome. He was not technically a king. Although his contemporaries may have referred to him as such. Because he was the man of power in that region. And so he married very well. Have even wanted his close friends and confidants that were bowing to his unauthorized power in many ways. Or abuse of power. To call him king. And so that probably was why Mark writes this, as he was known as the king, although he officially was not. And he lost his position in A.D. 39 after trying to gain complete sovereignty. I'm calling myself king, I want you to, but I want to be recognized as such, and that's how he ended up losing, actually, his position. He was obviously, as we'll see here in a a minute, a man of great weakness, both in his beliefs and in his lust. Herod heard of it. What did he hear? He heard of... What was happening? The message of Christ, the mighty works. 
the preaching. For Jesus' name had become known. Now, he probably didn't hear of it himself. Probably someone within his circle had heard of it and made it known to him. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Interestingly enough, John the Baptist never did any miraculous powers. He didn't do any miracles that we see in Scripture here. But there may be, by superstition that day, that they're thinking John the Baptist has now done a miraculous power. He's raised himself from the dead. But others said he is Elijah. And others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. All of these three that are mentioned are speaking about Christ, and he's not any of them. Christ himself even pointing to the fact that John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come, the prophet that was to proclaim the good news. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. Well, Herodias was not simply the wife of Herod's half-brother, Philip. She was also Herod's niece. It was as deplorable an affair of the highest scale as you could possibly imagine. And certainly the Jews of that day saw it as uh, such an atrocity. This woman really, in many ways, embodies the adulterous woman found in Proverbs 5, 6, and 7. She was a woman of deceit a woman of hate, a woman willing to do whatever is necessary to achieve her sinful desires. And if Herod's weakness was lust, this woman's weakness was power. Verse 19. And Herodias had a grudge against him. Notice Herod didn't necessarily have a grudge. It was her that had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not, for Herod feared John. Now, Matthew and Luke point to the fact that it may not necessarily have been a fear of John as it would have been a fear of the people's repercussions against him taking John's life. Knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, he kept him safe. So whether or not he was fearing the people or fearing John, above and all, the fact that John was a righteous and holy man, was the reason that he was jailed. When he heard him, meaning John speaking, Herod was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, now birthdays are to be celebrated. It is the gift of life from God, and we celebrate one another as we have birthdays, as the calendar rolls over. But we celebrate in Honoring God as the giver of life. We don't celebrate them the way Herod celebrated them here in a very selfish way and in a very sinful way. Opportunity came on his birthday. He gave a banquet for his nobles, military commanders, and leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. You might think about another passage in scripture where that same phrase was used. Esther, coming before the king, a wicked king, and saying, I'll give you up to half my kingdom. And she certainly didn't ask for what Herodias' daughter asks. Verse 24, she went out, said to her mother, what should I ask? 
And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, and notice how she adds to it, following in her mother's deplorable, sinful footsteps, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. This isn't for the fate of heart, the cost of following Christ. This is as bloody and gory as it could possibly get. The king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, but because of his word to these people that were in all probably pretenses, sinful people, sinful people that were encouraging his sin and lust, instead of doing what was right, he violates his conscience. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, meaning John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Now, many weeks ago, we looked at who John the Baptist was, but by way of reminder, let's turn over in our Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Let's look once again at who this man was, John the Baptist, and then we will stop for a few minutes before continuing in our study to look at some Look at his life a bit more closely. Maybe find some things that we can learn from his life in imitation of Christ. Luke 1, look with me at verse 5. We're introduced to him here, or at least his family. Luke 1, chapter 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. That is his father of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. And her name was Elizabeth. He came from a godly lineage. His father was a priest. By all means, what seems to be a faithful priest. His mother was a descendant of Aaron. Look over down in verse 13 of Luke chapter 1. But the angel that had come to Zechariah said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink. He must be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. He was to be a Nazarite. He was to be set apart for the work of the Lord. And the prophecy was fulfilled. He was filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb when Mary came and visited Elizabeth, and the child leaped in Elizabeth's womb. He was called to prepare the way of the Lord. He was called to call people back towards God's ways. Let's go toward the end of Luke chapter 1, all the way to verse 76. Zechariah's prophecy, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. He was the first prophet in 400 years at this point. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in it, darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew, and notice, became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. 
We had studied a couple weeks ago his clothing. It was clothing fit for a man that was in the wilderness. He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And you would note back in Mark 6 the disparity between these two men. We see the, the faithfulness of John. We see the weakness and unfaithfulness of Herod. We see a man in a palace probably clothed quite well to a humble man in a dungeon at this point, and yet a man who was serving the Lord, a man who had been in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance, a man who had served the Lord faithfully. Matthew eleven two through 14, we find Christ's description. At the beginning of that passage, Christ says, there is no one arisen that is greater than John the Baptist. So I think it's helpful for us to pause and just look at the life of John the Baptist more closely. Because if you look at Mark 6, Herod hears of Christ, and yet he compares him to what he knows, which is John the Baptist. Therefore, I think there's some, some aspects of John the Baptist's life that mimic the life of Christ that we can learn from. You'll notice there in verse 14, some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers at work in him. Others said Elijah. Others said he's a prophet. Herod heard of it. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Therefore, John's nature, John's testimony, John's character imitated the life of Christ to the point that when he saw Christ, he was reminded of another man who had embodied Christ, though not perfectly. So you might note four things. I've just jotted down four things. He's a sort of bit of a rabbit trail, but four things I think that we can learn from John the Baptist that will help us imitate Christ, and certainly was an imitation of Christ. Number one, we would note that there was no fear of man, no fear of man in the life of John the Baptist. Or you could say, John the Baptist was a man that was bold. Herod was the the power of that day. Herod had the ability and even did so to take the life of John the Baptist. And yet that did not stop John the Baptist from proclaiming boldly, even confronting Herod on what was right, what was according to the law of God. That is, his marriage was out of order. And John the Baptist could have said, well, that's the politics of the day and we're gonna go over here and be good Christians. No, because the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that we want to see here on earth. We think of the Lord's prayer. And so John the Baptist confronts Herod. In contrast to John's boldness, Herod was a weak man. A very weak man. Let us not have a fear of man. Let us be bold in the face of whomever we need to be bold. We want to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that gospel includes repentance. We don't go simply to a man that has power or to a woman that has power and simply call them to believe in Jesus, but to turn from their sin. How much more should we simply do those with our neighbors that are around us if John and even Christ would do so to the powers of that day? Number two, character traits or personality traits that, we, that mark John the Baptist imitating Christ that we can learn from. No fear of man was number one. Number two, the message of repentance was central. I've already said that a bit, but the message of repentance was central. He had an opportunity, as John Knox did, 
to stand before the powers of that day. And he could have said, well, you know, we're, we're suffering out there. The church is suffering. A, a bit of humanitarian aid might be of help. No. The gospel, the centrality of the message of repentance was central. And it should be for us as well that we would repent of our sin. Number three, he valued his conscience over approval. He valued his conscience over approval. John was a man of conscience. He stood before the king, or he stood before Herod, and he could have said a bunch of different things, and yet his conscience demanded that he speak the truth. Herod, on the other hand, had the opportunity to speak the truth and not take the head of John the Baptist, which he himself recognized as a righteous and holy man, and yet he did not. Let us value the conscience. Let us not defile the conscience. Let us not knowingly turn away from the truth into sin. And when we do, let us not just allow that to foster in our minds, but rather to repent of it. Number four, his focus produced righteousness and holiness. His focus produced righteousness and holiness. We noted there at the end of Luke chapter 1 that he spent much time in the wilderness all the way to the time of his public appearance. And those times in the wilderness was to focus on the Lord, to prepare himself for the work of ministry. He was intentional about walking with Christ and that should be our focus as well. Who we focus on is who we imitate. If we want to be those who are righteous, those who are recognized as holy, those that are set apart from the world because of our following of Christ, then to focus on anything other than Christ is going to leave us short of that. We must focus on Christ. We must spend time with him. Who we focus on is who we will resemble. Let's look back at the text here as we prepare to close. Look at verse 29. Before we take just a few minutes to look at 14 through 16, let's look at 29. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took John, his body, and laid it in a tomb. We notice the resemblance of the burial of John that is to come for Christ. We see this. Christ knowing that his burial is to come, and yet it was not a burial of of, of no hope, but it was a burial of great hope, hope for John and all those who in the early church here that Mark is writing to and us even today, that our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our forgiveness is bought and purchased and granted by the blood of Christ on the cross, but then our hope for eternity in heaven is found in the fact that Christ did not remain on that cross or remain in the grave, but was raised again on the third day. Mark encouraging the believers that this burial of this man isn't going to be one that will be forever, but he will, as Christ was raised from the dead, rise again as well. 14 through 16, what is the main point here? The main point, I think, for us is that Christ is like no other prophet before or after. He's not simply some, another, some other man. He's not simply like the best of men, even. John the Baptist being greater than any other man born of woman at that time. Those words being spoken by Christ. And yet, even those men pale in comparison to our Savior. He is like no other prophet before or after. He was not simply a man who came to give us good moral teachings. 
He was a man who came to save us sinners from hell. And he accomplished that purpose in the face of adversity that was far greater than John the Baptist. He faced the adversity of the whole world and the greatest adversity of all, which is the the turning away of his father from him. He endured the wrath of God that we might have life and life abundant. So followers of Christ on mission with and for Christ by the power of Christ will suffer. John the Baptist did so. The disciples would would one day suffer. The apostles would one day suffer. We will suffer. And if we're not suffering, I'm not speaking of physical persecution, but if we're not suffering, the question may be asked of us, why not? Are we not proclaiming the true gospel? Are we hiding it in ourselves? Are we simply trying to be Christians and yet conform to the world so they don't stand up too much? We don't be look as odd or weird. And yet, what was one of the things that was a safety net in some ways to the John the Baptist was his character of righteousness and holiness to the point that it was such an anomaly that Herod had to honor that. And may that be said of us. Christ was rejected. John the Baptist was rejected. For us that would follow him, we will be rejected. It may just be your family. My entire side on my family, on my mother's side is Catholic. There's rejection there. Some of you have the same testimony. We will be rejected. Let's not find that unusual. Let us not see that happening in an uncommon way, but maybe recognize that and actually be prepared for it because that helps us live in the light of eternity knowing that if we stand for Christ, there will be a cost and maybe even in this day and probably in my children's life in this day, death may be on the line for those who will stand for Christ. We have an easy day, as it were, but let's not take that for granted. Let's, make, let's allow that day to cause us to be even more bold to proclaim the truth. Because I've stated, Christ not only suffered for us, he suffered the greatest rejection possible, the rejection of the Father at the cross, because he took all of our sin in shame, and he bore it upon himself. Five bleeding wounds he bare, as we sung received on Calvary. He bore those wounds for us. So let us imitate him. Let us imitate John the Baptist and many other men and women in the faith who have come before, who in, in, the, in, the, in the nature of Hebrews 11, in the nature of Hebrews 12, that heavenly king that's, that, that we run the race with, that has run well. May we do that. If we're gonna be on mission for Christ, let us not be caught off guard by the cost of that mission. The centrality of that mission being the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you bore our, bore the rejection deserved for us. The wrath of God was in all justice to be poured out upon us as sinners. And yet, Father, you took that rejection. Your son taking that rejection for us. Father, this mission of Christianity is not for the faint of heart. And yet, Father, we oftentimes faint in the day of adversity. Let us not do so. 
but rather, Father, give us strength to stand strong. We may be rejected, we may be mocked, we may be ridiculed, and yet how simple, how trivial that is to men like John the Baptist and ultimately your son Christ who laid down their life in a brutal way for the cause of the gospel, for the mission, for the message of repent and believe. Father, I pray that this week we would take opportunity as you provide to stand, to be counted among those who are among the church, who are among the bride of Christ, who resemble and model the body of Christ. Father, help us to not shirk from that. You, Father, have called us and you will enable us and may we trust you for this mission. And help us, Father, help us to not grow weary when the cost seems to be high. We thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you for the way it encourages us and challenges us and strengthens us. Father, you have told us beforehand this suffering will come. But you've told us the end of the story as well. And so we look to you, Father, for our hope and encouragement this morning. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.